0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and my roses are being eaten
1: by invasive beetles. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my invasive tree was eaten by a chainsaw. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Graham Cracker Porter from the Denver Brewing Company. This pours like root beer. You know, I was thinking about the color as well, uh, that when it's in the glass, it's mostly opaque, but while it's pouring, you can see through it. It's a reddish brown, a light reddish brown. It has sort of like a, I was gonna say soda consistency in the pour, but you're right, it does have this root
1: beer kind of uh, feeling to it. I'm not getting any smells oh yeah that's interesting very little not quite zero but very little even the head is kind of root beery. There's right a yeah. lot of carbonation in that head yeah all right let's go um what are we doing today mr ralph as the summer of 2022 wanes we will spend some time looking at the bigger picture of how education has been affected by COVID 19 these past few years We read reviews of the current research on COVID impacts on mental health and academic outcomes, with thoughts on how it may impact our prep for the coming year. Later, we react to a review of research on visual displays and the importance of intentionally developing visual literacy. How can we help students learn to decode visual language? Let's get started. For our first segment, we read the mental health impacts of COVID-19 on pre-K to 12 students. A systematic review of emerging literature this was written by
0: David Nath, Shanita Williams, Jenna Furman darby and Melissa
1: Young this was published in era open in 2022 I queued this paper because as we're you know the summer is starting to approach uh, approach its end and many listeners by the time this releases will be thinking about um, perhaps, what's going to be what's going to be in their plans for the next school year I really wanted to spend some time reflecting on some of the large scale lessons taken from how COVID has disrupted education over the course of the last couple of years. And that that looks like many things because it's been a very complicated couple of years. Uh, so I wanted to just spend some time looking at, uh, we actually have a couple of reviews on the table that are looking at academic impacts and then this paper that's looking at mental health impacts so that we can be aware of how students' needs might be different than what we were expecting or what we have seen in the past uh, so that we can be proactive in planning for meeting those needs
0: regular listeners will know that you know student mental health is a, uh, a flag that I, I like to wave and it's it's a, it's a you know one of my one of my torches to carry and so I really I'm glad that this is published but when I consider all the stuff that it was reporting and I you know I'm guess I'm glad I guess it's good that this is all official. nothing in here is a surprise. There's no, I, you know, I, I can't really say there's a whole lot of new information in there. There is some things that I didn't think about. Uh, like, I hadn't considered that because everyone was going through this pandemic, the stresses and mental health of parents was also in decline, which had downstream consequences to increased instances of physical and emotional abuse. I hadn't thought about that. But that also doesn't surprise me. Uh, and so when you consider all of the other things that they do report are the consequences on student mental health uh, due to COVID-19, I wasn't really surprised. Most of the consequences occurred between kids that were actually in school and kids that were younger than school didn't experience as much of these consequences. Um, and that makes sense because the school routines were entirely obliterated. How we socialize was entirely obliterated. All of these um, things that we expect, increases in loneliness, increases of anxiety, increases in depression, in some cases, increases in uh, suicidal ideation. They were all kind of as as I anticipated.
1: So as I was pondering, reading through this and I had a similar reaction, I'm not as steeped in this, in this topic as you are, but I had a similar reaction of much of this is uh, at least intuitive, right? If if I was going to make a guess about how these things played out uh, when prompted, I probably would have guessed in the right direction for much of this. But I think what I took away reading through this was the importance of embracing the truth that student needs are going to be more extensive than they have been in the past. There are some statistics early on in the paper that they shared looking at uh, some, some of our past examples come from things like, uh, like natural disasters. And so they shared one of the things uh, in the um, population of students affected by Hurricane Katrina, which is nearly 200,000 students, they saw that about a third of them experience uh, either post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, depression symptoms, a third of students affected by this disaster, um, exhibited some of these symptoms. That's, and that's a lot like the reality that that's a lot. And then I paired that with another statistic later on where they pointed out that for students, um, for 80% of students, they rely on school services to provide their mental health services. So a lot of students are going to be affected by their disrupted experiences. They're going to be perhaps directly affected by COVID-19, either themselves or their caregivers. And so a lot of students are going to have mental health needs and the vast majority of students need those needs met in school. And so it is not an extra or an optional for people who work in schools. We have to embrace it. That's a reality that we're going to have to address. Uh, Yeah, I, I, I did have, I did, I did
0: identify three shoulds from the paper, and uh, because like summarizing that student mental health is bad in a many number of ways because of the pandemic and ways that to me are intuitive. You know, maybe I'm not doing my job as, as, a, as a semi-journalistic agent where, like, we're going to translate the research, you know, for people who haven't read it. Um, maybe I should go through all the ways that the pandemic negatively affects the, the, the mental health of our of our kids. But I'm going to skip that for now, and we're going to go to the should. This was – I originally marked it as should number two. Students should have access to mental health provi- providers – School has been the primary mode for most students to get access to mental health support. Teachers can play a role for mental wellness instruction when mental health, even though they can't be a mental health support uh, agent themselves. What's really hitting me is my third should is that districts should increase their funding for personnel to support student wellness. In, In addition to incorporating mental health support decisions throughout their logistical considerations, This hits me because my district, currently in a budget crisis, laid off a slew of mental health supports last spring. So we're actually going into this fall with far less systemic mental health professional available to our students uh, than in the past in light of this uh, research synthesis that says, that is the opposite of what you should be doing. And then I'll add an additional note my principal individually went to bat with the people making the decisions to fight for and protect uh some of our mental wellness personnel so that my school specifically is not losing those resources despite the fact that it is happening elsewhere in the district so thank you, principal, for that
1: well done yeah one of the one of the shoulds that was starting to coalesce in my mind as I was reading through this paper. Um, because yes, we need more support and more infrastructure to support student wellness. And we even have past episodes looking at how some of those additional you know, universal screening approaches and, um, and supports have an impact and matter for students. And that is true now. It was true in 2019. It is true right now also. Um, if I'm thinking about it from the perspective of one classroom teacher who doesn't have control over district level funding decisions, but does have control over how they can proactively advocate for students in the classroom. What are some of the things that I might want to change about how I think about that topic now compared to how I would have thought about it a couple of years ago. And that sort of um, led me to some of their individual findings that they pulled out in their paper that they would actually help me refine sort of my, my lens as a classroom teacher. One of the things that they pointed out that I thought was really useful to me was they saw differences in how, the additional stresses of the past couple of years have manifested across age groups. And I think that that maps really well onto some of the stories I've heard from educators across those age groups and can be useful to recontextualize what we're seeing in individual incidents. Let me give you an example. For early childhood setting, they saw that very young children are have regressed, like in many cases, they develop skills, And then the pandemic arises. and we have isolation, we have reduced services. And so skills that they had or were developing competence in, they stopped practicing or reduced competency in those skills. And that can be really frustrating for educators who are working with students and you see them making negative progress in our perceptions. And that's a response to the stress, the stresses going on around them and some of the disruptions in their lives. And so being able to understand that it's not about, it's not about something, something else but it's a response to the environment. And so it is then our job as educators to respond back to it in kind. We see this, do they need, do they need mental sup- health support services? Do they, do the parents need something? Do we need to talk to the parents or, or is it just something that we need to adjust and differentiate the classroom experience for the understanding that regression for early childhood is a common response to the COVID-19 disruptions can help us prepare proactively for what we want to do when we see that with students. Uh, Another example with older students with adolescents, so who I would work with if I was in a middle school or a high school, uh, some of the examples are a reduced ability to concentrate on tasks increased absenteeism. And I wrote down uh, reduced goal orientation. What, what they actually said in the paper was lower academic performance. But what I think about that is is they're, they're less invested in succeeding in some of the conventional mechanisms of school. And I suspect that's because they just have literally physically been in school less. And so feel less of an identification or a connection to that. And so recognizing that some of those things happening with students, when students are not concentrating as much in my class, when I'm doing some, some instructional activities, then the past have been very effective. And I see that now, well, they're not as effective because they're not concentrating well. It's not a deficiency of the students and it's not even necessarily a, def- a deficiency of the methodology at a theoretical standpoint. It's just no longer the appropriate thing for what they need in that, mo- in that moment based on their learning needs. And so being able to prepare, uh, proactively identify, I'm going to be asking of them a high level of concentration. So I can predict that this year they may might, n- might not be as prepared for that or more students will struggle with that high level of concentration. So I need to walk in particularly well equipped to respond to lower levels of concentration because we know that's a consequence of the COVID-19 disruptions. There are actually different
0: consequences and impacts of this of the mental health effects of this based on the other demographics of the students as well and this is something that teachers should be mindful of. Uh, Because we have all kinds of students in our classrooms. The impacts, again, as we've said earlier, are kind of not surprising. It turns out that if you are a white, wealthy uh, male, you have the least impacting mental health consequences of this pandemic. But each of those subcategories, females uh, have been carrying a little more anxiety as a consequence of this, Uh, minority Students have more pandemic-related stressors, low socioeconomic status. Students with a low socioeconomic status have more uh, stressors. And so the consequence of their mental health is usually, in most cases, more significant, uh, though there are some different mitigating factors amongst those different demographics. Um, As a teacher, however, you need to recognize As always, you need to differentiate for the students that you have and the needs of the students that you have, which are going to be different from each other based on their experiences. So you really need to humanize the students in your classroom and recognize that you can't really make assumptions about how well they are dealing with this um, without
1: knowing them, uh, which requires a lot of work. So I want to add on to that because you mentioned the um – the difference in impact across different subgroups, and that was borne out in another paper that I read. So this this segment was really about me wanting to think about large scale, you know, general patterns of COVID-19 impact, and this paper was about mental health, uh, but. Academic outcomes are also important to me, and I was sort of split because there was two papers that I wanted to read, so I ended up reading both of them. So there's a second paper um, written, it's called Test Score Patterns Across Three COVID-19 Impacted School Years. Uh, It was out at Educational Researcher very recently, and so I'm going to put a link to that paper in the episode notes also. And looking at those results, we saw really similar patterns, that there are everybody, almost everybody, was impacted to some degree, in their ability to learn to read and their ability to learn math um, over the course of the last couple of years. It looks like more so affected in math learning than reading, but both of them were generally affected. But what was important was that those impacts were very different depending on your subgroup membership. And it was along the very same lines as what you laid out here in Impact for Mental Health and Wellness. And so you saw minoritized identities with regard to gender, with regard to sexual orientation, with regard to race and ethnicity, with regard to poverty, uh, all of which are, were different with the minoritized groups being more heavily affected, presumably because they have, they're already being affected by systemic violence from inequities in our society. And so that compounds or reduces their ability to deal with the other problems of these disruptions, with mag- which magnifies their effects. And so they're being more harmed by the COVID-19 disruptions because they are dealing with other harmful things. And so what's important is seeing how that plays out in our classrooms so that we can proactively disrupt those mechanisms of marginalization and harm in our classrooms when we see them manifest in our individual classrooms, recognizing that the differences between individual experiences are going to be very different and probably even more different than they would have been a couple of years ago. Um, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, uh,
0: confirming one's bias, especially when one confirm when you read papers saying, you know, negative consequences of um, excessive social media use. Uh, as a consequence of this pandemic, students increased their internet use, resulting in declining self-esteem, declining well-being, increased clinical depression, higher associations with anxiety and stress, uh, all spent with increased time at, online. Uh, there was a, increased increase uh, of gaming addiction, Increase uh, inattentive behaviors. However, when those social media devices were actually used to, you know, FaceTime your friends or your families or uh, allow for socialization across distance, though they positively mitigated some of the negative effects contributing to a better sense of wellness and socialization for friends and family. So. If you are FaceTiming your aunt and uncle that you never get to see, you are reaping mental health benefits. If you're scrolling through TikTok the entire time, that's terrible for you. So how people use their devices during the pandemic mattered with overall there being greater negative effects with some significant positive effects.
1: A lot of what I heard you say in that is overlaps with one of the first recommendations that they kind of pulled out from all of this, all of this literature review and they had five, but I want to jump to the fifth one because the fifth one is the one that I thought was most useful if I was putting myself in a classroom teacher role, because they described looking at these variety of studies, a series of coping strategies that either were effective or not effective for students based on the, the research that they included. It's not directly in the paper, but I want to mention it because it came to mind in that section in the pause. There's fewer positive strategies than negative ones, which is a bummer. Um, in that list that I saw, and I'm not going to be able to cite it. I don't know whether I can even put this online because I don't, I don't know if I can find the original source anymore, but I saw somebody talking a couple of weeks ago about the impacts of optimism and pessimism again. And I think about that regularly because- I could be called a pessimist. We are different in that regard, I think, generally. Optimists and pessimists and their, I think it was mental health outcomes, but it wasn't necessarily that optimism was good for you, but heavy pessimism is bad for you. And so just choosing not to dwell on the worst possible outcomes does make your mental health better if you're not living in the worst version of the world all the time, and that's not to say, assume everything will be fine and ignore problems, but if we are ruminating on and dwelling on the worst case scenario, the the terrible post potential outcomes all the time, that does have a negative consequence on us in a physiological way. That's interesting. Uh, I'm
0: currently reading thinking fast and slow. I'm reading through the optimism bias chapter, uh, which solidified that I am running around with optimism bias. And uh, it was very interesting as he's introducing that, like, man, if you have to pick a bias for your kids to have, pick this one because of all of these amazing things and all of these great tendencies that they have and all of these things that they tend to accomplish. Note, however, that optimism bias can be bad for the other people in their life because they are the people who will be like take huge risks in businesses, uh, really believing that everything is going to work out. And then when it doesn't work out for them, they're actually like, well, but that's okay. I can pick myself up and I can move on. And then there's all these other lives that have been impacted negatively by their decisions who don't have that same perspective. And then like bad things have happened to them and they believe bad things will continue to happen to them. And so this is this wake of like collateral damage about the, about being dragged by this optimism bias, a powerful optimism bias individual. And I thought that that was interesting and it reframed some things about my behaviors allowed me to look at them in a different way. Like, my optimism is also bad for pessimists. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, I just thought that that was interesting. But we are so far down a branch. I want to get back to something that was in the paper. And there was one study that said that in a longitudinal study, they found that before the pandemic, only 3.3% of the young adolescents demonstrated what they the phrase they used was "problematic symptoms" regarding fear, anxiety, depression, loneliness, and maladaptive behaviors. I don't know what problem. I don't know. I don't know what the operational definition of problematic symptoms was, but the post-COVID or the current, the now stat is twenty-two point nine percent exhibiting problem symptoms uh that is a huge jump i don't know what i don't know what you're defining as problematic symptoms are but only 3.3 percent of the kids had them before and now 22.3 percent or nine have them now so like three out of 100 kids has become one out of five for whatever however we define problematic symptoms uh that makes me want to read who songs 2021 paper so i know what problematic symptoms are because now i've got a I need to accept that my classroom is going to be dramatically changed. And if I don't know what that means, I'm not going to be able to respond to
1: what that change is. So this doesn't directly follow from your comments, but I am thinking about the, that, that other paper that I read um, about the academic outcomes. There was an interesting piece of, the, of, of what they looked at, which was comparing some of the realities of academic progress for students during these disrupted couple of years and some of the early projections that were made about disruption, uh, their disrupted outcomes, and how well those have panned out. And there is very few things I enjoy quite so much as revisiting predictions to evaluate their accuracy. Uh, And so I really appreciated that in the second paper. And one of the things that they found was um, we overestimated. I say we, I didn't make any estimates, but researchers, however they define them in that study, overestimated the impact Of COVID nineteen disruptions on student learning, they specifically they estimated from thirty to fifty percent reduction in academic progress compared to students in like a twenty eighteen or a twenty nineteen in similar demographic classrooms, Um, which those are some big numbers, y'all. Like that's 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 a really big. that's a really big difference. And what they found was the reality was much, lo- I'm saying much lower. Uh, the disruptions were actually 15% reductions in reading and 20% reductions in math. Uh, that, that seems like a non-trivial difference to me. The authors specifically called it a slight, a slight overestimation. And, That doesn't seem like a slight miss to me if you're going to take a 20% margin on your estimate and you still miss, you missed like that's a miss. Uh, And so as I'm pondering, the reality that being in classrooms has mattered, the reality that learning amid an ongoing global health crisis has mattered, and also that some of the early predictions have been wrong in what I think are meaningful ways. What does that mean for some of today's predictions and extrapolations? And so even though we spent a fair amount of time talking this afternoon about some of the realities of differences that, at least I'll say for me, I expect to manifest in classrooms come August. I also want to recognize that in some research, we've seen that the impacts have been lower than educational researchers have expected or predicted. And so also, let's not walk into the classrooms immediately ascribing a deficit to the students who are sitting in that classroom, immediately assuming that they are behind something or less than or worse than somebody else. We do need to know our students and to see each of them see what they have gotten good at, what they need or want help with. Recognize that that answer might be more often they need help with their mental wellness than has been in the past but also recognize that that might not be true for the group of students who are sitting in your classroom in august uh, because sometimes the predictions have been wrong or for some students the disruptions have been less and so we've got to, we really do have to know our students prepare for possible outcomes but then get to know the students with whom we work Listen, plan, and play. For our second segment, we read, Using Visual Displays to Improve Classroom Thinking. This was written by Gregory Schraw and Aaron Richmond. This is published in Educational Research, Theory, and Practice in 2022. Uh, one more note, I want to acknowledge that this paper was published posthumously, uh, and so our gratitude and condolences to the family of Dr. Gregory Shaw. I was pondering the kinds of things we've read over the course of the last year and what might be an interesting um, area that we haven't discussed recently. And right before COVID-19 was upon us in the United States, one of our last unaffected episodes was around spatial reasoning. Oh. I remember that because I was in the process of pitching that topic for other outlets, and they were like, we only care about COVID now. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, And so I came across this paper, which is also a review article, which gives me a a nice, uh, this is a pre year in review because we're reading many reviews. And Uh, looking at how visual representations and graphical displays matter and what we can do to help students work with them was a, I was like, oh, it's been, it's been a couple of years since we've thought about that since we're thinking about the last couple of years in COVID. So that was enough for me to queue it up. And so I did. Uh, And there's a lot more in here than I expected. I actually, I literally had the experience as I was reading it. I got about halfway through. I was like, Oh my God! They're starting whole new topics. Like we don't—it's too late in the paper to have new things all of a sudden. Like what are you? There's so much in here, uh, and really, so it's all around like uh, the the various considerations of visual displays is the is the topic. Visual displays can be all sorts of things. Basically, anything that isn't a block of text written in paragraph form. So that can be graphs. That can be concept maps. That can be storyboards. That can be um, like tables. That can be Anything, anything, anything that is worth looking at for how it looks. I don't know. It's just, it's just such a yeah. broad category of visual displays. Um, and what does it look like to use those in a classroom and to help students use them themselves? Uh, they, they kind of took a step back and said, if we want to talk about the significance of divis-
0: the visual displays, we're going to have to talk about visual literacy uh, and how st- the, the skills that people have to understand what they are looking at. And that's, I think that that's really what the paper is about. That if you're going to use non-text, any non-text to teach anything, then you need to be aware that you're assuming
1: that students have interpretation skills, which they may or may not actually have. They lay out what is basically a hierarchy of thinking. You can, I, I could map it onto like Bloom's taxonomy, but for visual displays. And the very first entry was enough that I paused on it and like I had to sit and think about it for a minute. Because the single most fundamental component, before you can do anything else, is decode the symbolic language of the given visual display.
0: I had an example in my mind exactly of that. I have been teaching college biology now for... Uh, seven years, and I remember my second year of teaching it. That uh, in in college biology, we we use molecular, we use organic molecular diagrams that are letters connected by lines. That's what they are. They're letters connected by lines. Sometimes there's no letter; it's just a point. And we use them all year. And it wasn't until the end of my second year of teaching this class that I realized. My kids have no actual idea what those symbols represent. And that, of course, now we, I like, it, it, encoding the symbolic language, decoding the symbolic language, like, I assumed that they knew what the symbols meant, uh, so that interpreting, like, we were getting into more complex inferences and associations, but you, you I can't really depend on them to make those unless... They know what the, the flat map is communicating. And they, and I hadn't taught them that. I assumed that they knew it. That was a major flaw. Uh, so I didn't teach anybody anything my first year of teaching college biology. And then uh, I really feel like I only started teaching it appropriately my third year of teaching college biology. Because this visual literacy,
1: I was making assumptions about their encoding. And that's step one. And this shows up across all contexts. It's it, the nature of the breadth of visual displays means that this is relevant for every single teacher. And I can think of examples across all sorts of things. I can think about working in like a, a user interface for a computer where I look at a website and I see one of the four borders around a box. That line is a little bit thicker. I assume I can interact with that line. I assume that there's probably something I can pull out or it's clickable or it just my attention notices that. I assume it contains information and I assume I can interact with it. And that is decoding symbolic language. Knowing what the shapes of the UI, even I don't. If even, even if I don't know exactly what they mean, I know that they mean something, and so I can be tinkering with it in a way that if I am not, if I have not practiced recognizing symbolic language, I may not know that that means something in the first place. You can think about it looking at a map. Where if I'm looking at a map of countries i see one region is shaded in a different way from the other regions what does that shading mean does it does it mean it's contested does it mean that it's unknown or ambiguous i don't know what it means because i'm making this example up but the fact that i recognize that different visual representation means something in the context of geopolitics lets me activate things that i know could be relevant in this time period and in this place And if I don't have practice recognizing how differences or ambiguities or representations show up in those visual displays, then I'm not going to be able to get those intuitive senses. And it takes practice and very often intentionality to develop those competencies.
0: You know they are competent when they can not only interpret but also create visual displays and that's if you if you're like worried about I, i'm not i don't know if worried but if you are concerned about this skill and whether you've got them at a level where they are able that you can start taking things for granted you won't know that you're at that comfortable space until they can turn it around and re recreate a visual display in, in another using different information or in another setting or another context unless they have transference of the of the creation of visual displays you really can't take for granted that the information that you're giving them is going to be
1: uh internalized. Uh that makes me think of there's a really great example from a friend of the show uh Mr. Camden Hanslick Burton so shout out I'm going to use your story there I know that in his classroom uh he has done and I think maybe you've even done this also Uh, an instance where they've shown multiple representations of the same thing. They're using significantly different visual language to represent those things. And then spending considerable time helping students process what they're seeing and eventually merge their understanding across both of those models. You're emoting as though this is something you've done. So please.
0: Uh, Yeah. uh, I like to do it with um, the, Uh, transcription and translation these highly complex processes that are happening within our cells so uh we got to rely on animations we got to rely on people making choices about how they're going to represent these complex molecules interacting in what is actually a very rapid fashion right so even when you're you I have one model that I show having these interactions happen in real time and it looks amazing, but no one can keep track of what the heck is happening. And then another one that is really slowly animated that things are just kind of lackadaisical, right? Kick recline, kick your feet up, have something to drink and watch this long movie of this process that is actually taking place, uh, you know, hundreds of times a second. So it's, um, then we have to have discussions about, well, which one's right? And the answer is none of them. None of them are right. Not a single one of these is, is quote, correct. Uh, because you have to sacrifice accuracy to make other concepts accessible. And that's, that's a part of scientific modeling, period. Uh, and so one of the things that was striking me as I was reading this paper is that they do hit on it a little bit but uh visual literacy uh also interacts with disciplinary literacy because like the skills that we are understanding about models can definitely be transferred to other disciplines but in other disciplines you're going to be concentrating on other things the way we use disciplinary literacy in an english class is is our visual literacy in an english class is going to be different than how it's practiced in a, in a math class and a um a, a science class, and all of those together are cooperating to build this overall video, uh, visual literacy skill that we definitely want our kids to have because it has all kinds of cognitive benefits. That skill contributes to all kinds of, of, of other cognitive interactions, like being able to retrieve and store information better, um, uh, having better access to problem-solving strategies, visual literacy feeds into all of their thinking
1: skills. So uh, it's not something to ignore. I also have to call out because I, later in their paper, they got to a spot where I was like, yeah, this is all well, and good, but what about? And like, they basically interrupted me with their writing as I was thinking, what about? As I was like, yeah, there are also a few things we do that are bad and we should stop doing them right away. And I'm like, oh, they're (laughs) spilling the tea. Let's talk about it. Uh, So I really appreciated they were pointing them out because they were not gotcha moments, but they were definite clear, like, don't do these things because they interfere with your goal of growing visual literacy. And there were three. And honestly, I think the first one is the one that really like is big. And the other two were just, oh, well, let's do better about those. But the first one was like, oh, yeah, let's let's not make that mistake. The biggest recommendation was. Uh, there are too many instances, they were especially looking at textbooks, where you have visual representations that are extraneous, or superfluous, unnecessary, that are just added as decoration or filler in textbooks. And I think especially about science textbooks, where they're like, well, if these were all just big pages of text, nobody would buy them. So I guess we'll drop a visual display in here, even though it's not actually needed to understand the text. Don't do that. Uh, That actually um, is
0: reinforced by some older research that said that the the way you – what you choose to include in your classroom on the walls and decoration should have a relevant connection to the things that you are going to teach in that classroom – And that if you have a bunch of random stuff up there that you never, ever talk about, that's actually going to decrease the academic performance of students in your classroom. And I think it's the same thing. You can put a bunch of sweet pictures in a textbook. If they don't have anything to do with anything, they're actually a cost. And visual displays are supposed to help with cognitive load by helping recognize that, oh, this display is going to help me re- and remind me about these ideas in the future. I don't have to think about them right now while I'm working on these other processes. I can go back to this visual display and get those prompted real quick later. So it's supposed to be a cognitive tool, not a cognitive extraneous cognitive distraction. Uh, I don't have a lot of shoulds. There's a lot of visual displays are important and teaching visual literacy is important because dot, dot, dot in this paper. And I think the vast majority of this paper is that. Um, but I think the should is, do not assume kids understand your diagram. That is number one. Do not make that assumption. Actively make it a point that when you are choosing to use images to instruct, you spend some time teaching about the use of that image. And that teaching might be direct instruction. That teaching might be you telling them what the interpretation is or the symbolic language. And the teaching could be asking them what they're getting from it, right? The teaching could be having them create images that serve the same function as this other one. Like, you know, teaching is broad, but don't just, here's an image next. Don't do it.
1: Spend some time using that image to instruct. There's one other piece in here that they called out that was useful to me because I hadn't connected these ideas as um, clearly as the authors did before, where they pointed out that visual displays are especially useful in developing student argumentation skills. I thought that was awesome because argumentation is cool. Argumentation is a key piece of uh, science practice that especially needs more attention. It was a, it was a pretty uh, hot topic in, right before COVID hit, right? It was a really big um, area of scholarship and discussion in the professional organizations that I frequent. And so if we're still interested in facilitating student development of argumentation skills, visual displays are excellent for developing those argumentation skills because very often the visual language is used to reinforce and scaffold argumentation Visual displays are very often about making crisp arguments, and so the overlap is really good because I can say, okay, maybe I wasn't thinking about this piece of my, I wasn't thinking about you know the evidence I'm marshalling for my argument explicitly, but I know that when I look at this visual language, I'm expecting some language over here, which then prompts me to think about, oh, that would be evidence. I would include material here for my evidence. I should provide it. And so the overlap in visual displays facilitating development of argumentation ability is awesome. That's something that I would really enjoy tinkering with in a classroom.
0: We're in this together. So how was the beer? Uh, so, the I, I've got my notes here. It's bitter in the middle. It has like a clean, no flavor aftertaste. And I left initial blank. Yeah. So, right. so it's <laughs> like, there's something that's not happening immediately. And then it's bitter. And then that goes away. Uh, and I wrote, it is like, if this is an experiment in ter- making a beer reflect the essence of graham cracker they have done a very good job because just like graham crackers i wish it was sweeter and it's not very satisfying
1: i i just slightly don't enjoy that middle bitterness and if there was something else to it that i could focus on it would be fine Um, but i agree i like i taste like it smells and if you go back and listen to the tape i didn't smell much of anything and that was my experience i don't taste much of anything i feel like it's worth acknowledging because of the times we live in if both of us are sitting here reviewing a beer and saying we can't taste anything i took a covid test very recently and was negative so i i'm not experiencing lack of taste lack of smell i taste and smell other things so this is a slightly bitter dark
0: beer that is all i got slightly
1: bitter dark water uh well like combined it's a, it's a with the, combined with the, um, slight translucence with the lightness of the, of the head, right? It's not it is like a light
0: head, yeah.
1: all these things are combined. I get th- those are properties of I don't thinner things. Good on you, Denver beer company for trying things. I applaud experimentation and I'm happy to have supported your experimentation. I have no need of drinking anymore. We appreciate you tuning in. This is our last content-focused episode, and next month will be our year in review as we reflect on the things we've learned and how we're going to apply it in the coming year. So we'd love to hear from you. We have drop a comment on our website, twopintplc.com, and let us know what's been impactful for you. What do you want to hear in the coming year as we sort of regroup, spend some time together, and get ready for another school year?
0: We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.